0: So let's start this this fourth uh, talk by going back to a passage that I quoted um, a couple of days ago, where the Buddha describes his uh, awakening as having understood what is the delight of experience, what is the tragedy of experience and what is the emancipation of experience and he says it's when, it, when he realized that it's that, that the happiness and joy that arise conditioned by experience, that is its delight, that experience is impermanent, dukkha and changing, that is its tragedy. And the removal and abandonment of grasping for experience, that is its emancipation. In other words, this points, I think, very clearly to how his awakening was, as it were, um, a total reorientation to the experience that you and I are having now. And that his uh, teaching was very much to point out not only a a theory, as it were, but actually a strategy, a practice, whereby to recover um, that primary sense of life, experience, the world, what's happening, being in the world, in such a way that we are freed from the compulsive tendency to reduce and to grasp and to indulge and to to crave to hate, to fear, to become uh, to remain always as it were at one step removed from the actuality of experience to somehow always see ourselves reflected back in everything we experience. Like that image yesterday of the, the young man or woman looking in a mirror and just seeing and somehow becoming intoxicated by their own image. And how the Buddha compares experience, the body, the feelings, perceptions, inclinations, consciousness, as very often, uh, little more than a mirror to reflect back our own sense of me. And I think it's true that possibly the most challenging part of this um, approach is to, um, is, is, to, is to really question uh, our whole investment, both uh, conceptually as well as emotionally, in our self-centeredness to somehow allow ourselves to open up to experience as simply something that happens something that constantly unfolds whether it be physical or mental or psychological or, or whatever it might be that we are as it were in an unfolding of life in a pouring forth of um, of arisings and passings um, that are not essentially anything to do with me. They're not in any sense mine. They're not myself, as he says. And the great challenge is, well, how do we let go in such a way that that kind of vision of experience uh, becomes immediate, becomes real for us. I think on a retreat, when we allow ourselves to somehow settle, to let the mind become more still and more calm, we begin to get a feel for this kind of uh, perspective, this uh, vision. But it's particularly difficult when we come back from a retreat into our daily lives to find that uh, in a way we get overwhelmed uh, by the the pace and the the power of what bombards us, um, particularly in a highly information-rich society such as ours. Today we're going to go and look at this same material from just another slightly different perspective. And I want to begin with um, reading a passage that um, scholars at least uh, regard as having um, uh, a a good chance of being one of the earlier texts within the Pali Canon. I mean this is done on linguistic and other grounds in which the Buddha uh, describes his own awakening. And it's found in in the Arya Parayasana Sutta, the Discourse on the Noble Quest, which is one of the few autobiographical uh, texts in the canon. And it's uh, in the Marjama Nikaya, number 26. So this is the Buddha speaking. He says, this Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, but sensed by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground. This conditionality. Conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground. The stilling of inclinations. The relinquishing of bases. The fading away of craving. Desirelessness stopping nibbana or nirvana. Now, this ground uh, he speaks of, uh, here he describes as paticca samupada, conditioned arising. And that again is another term which is more or less equivalent in range, not in meaning, but in range to experience the world, uh, the five aggregates, or the five bundles, nama rupa Vijnana. this other way he speaks of it as is as is something that is profoundly contingent, conditional. In other words, everything that is uh, arising and passing away within this field of events, does so because of its relationship uh, with other events. The the Buddha envisages a world that is basically a, a a network of relationships, of interconnected relationships that are constantly mutating and changing and evolving and vanishing and reappearing in which there is no room for some kind of fixed point of view. There is no uh, kind of unconditioned awareness that somehow remains independent of that field of rising and vanishing events. Nor is there any room for some kind of unconditional ground out of which these things emerge and into which they return. There is simply Uh, pure uh, contingency. But the reason why this is, is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle and sensed by the wise, is because as long as we are preoccupied with having a particular place or position or fixed sense of me or I or ego or a commitment to a certain belief that um, there is a kind of unconditioned reality or mind or awareness that is not part of this process, then we won't really be able to um, encounter such a, uh, well, what what he calls in fact, a tanang, a ground. So in other words, another synonym here is this idea of a ground. And he's clearly playing on words. He's saying we're preoccupied with our place, our position, which is very much to do with our backing off from this ground into somewhere that seems to be secure but has the, the perverse effect of actually rendering our experience somewhat alienated, opaque, um, cut off, dulled. That he compares the, um, uh, the, the, this conditioned field of events to a ground. Now, it's very likely and there is some, I think, evidence for this, that he's actually um, critiquing the idea that you find in the Upanishads that the ground of being is God, is Brahman, which is unconditioned. Here he's saying that actually our ground is something profoundly impermanent, um, non-me or self, Tragic in the sense of dukkha, constantly coming and going. And yet that's what he awoke to. He awoke to this ground. But not just that ground. There's another ground as well that he mentions. He says it's also hard if you are preoccupied with your place to see this ground, the stilling of inclinations, The relinquishing of bases, the fading away of craving, stopping Nibbāna. In other words, that experience of conditionality, contingency, nama rupa vijnana, only, as it were, it it, uh, it, it becomes truly vivid and present to us when we've stopped that compulsive, grasping and clinging and all the stuff we spoke of yesterday. And this stopping is called Nibbana. Nibbana, nirvana, is not, at least in this passage, um, some kind of permanent uh, state that we may achieve, perhaps after death, some kind of ultimate truth. But rather it refers to those Moments that may be very brief, they might be prolonged, in which we come to experience ourselves minus grasping, clinging, craving, uh, being preoccupied with who I am, my place, etc. etc. So there's two aspects to this awakening there's the waking up to the reality of this condition we are in and awaking up to the possibility that we can be in it and with it totally without having to, as it were, hold on to some uh, fixed identity about being me. Now he also realises, and this is um, uh, the famous passage in this regard, that he realizes that people are going to have a hard time understanding this. He says, if I were to teach the Dhamma, or this Dhamma, and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. (laughs) And he actually, well at least according to the text, I think there's a certain rhetorical element here as well perhaps, It's here where he describes what he's understood as pati-sotagami, which means going against the stream. It's kind of counterintuitive. It's not what you expect, or at least it's not what might be expected, say, in the India of his time. In other words, this awakening or enlightenment is not about gaining insight into something permanent or something transcendent. But actually, it's about waking up to the experience you're actually having right now. Except doing so, having relinquished or let go of those elements of our behavior that actually cut us off, hold us back from being fully alive. Is what it comes down to. It's about being fully alive. And what prevents us from being fully alive is this fixation around um, something we can hold on to that gives us a sense of permanence. Now of course this is not just an intellectual choice, it's actually an instinctive, um, possibly biologically rooted um, instinct or, or urge or impulse to somehow hold back. Now the centrality of this idea of, um, of con- conditioned arising um, is found in a number of, of play- places. And I think it's worth just citing a couple of them. There's a passage where Shariputta says, um, now this has been said by the Buddha. The one who sees conditioned arising sees the Dhamma. And the one who sees the Dhamma sees conditioned arising. In other words, uh, the teaching uh, of the Buddha um, is essentially about understanding conditionality, contingency, the interrelated, processual nature of life itself. This is another passage. This is the Buddha speaking to a man called Udayin, who was a Jain, I think. He says, let be the past, Udayin, let be the future. I will teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. Now in many ways this is what we would call causality and it points very much to the um, uh, experience of, of, of conditionality not just as a sort of abstract idea but the very nature and structure of the path itself is also an illustration or an example of conditionality. Uh, In in other words, um, if you want to, as it were, practice effort, you don't willfully push yourself, but you try to understand what would be the conditions that would give rise to my applying myself more fully. Uh, This is a a strategy you find right throughout these uh, teachings, that What we're trying to do is reconfigure um, the conditions of our lives such that um, a different kind of experience begins to arise quite naturally. So in other words, if we cultivate mindfulness and concentration and let's say a certain kind of intelligence or inquiry, um, a, a certain ethical awareness, by doing that, we are creating conditions that will quite organically give rise to other ways in which we respond to life. And the more that we respond to life in that way, the more that will again feed back into the cultivation of mindfulness and awareness and so on. So the idea of conditionality um, is not just an abstract theoretical idea, but it's actually um, very much at the core of um, the praxis itself. It's what we do. It's an instruction to do something. It's not a description of how the world is, which I've suggested the Buddha isn't actually terribly interested in. What he's trying to do with all of these uh, uh, teachings is to provide us with some instructions, some suggestions, some guidelines. He's giving us something to do. There's a rather beautiful passage here. He says, this conditioned arising is profound. It's through not understanding, not penetrating this Dhamma, that people become like tangled balls of string covered with blight, like coarse, tangled like coarse grass. In other words, when we fail, as it were, at least this is his understanding, to uh, really appreciate the conditional nature of things, and it's, it's precisely that that gets us tangled up in knots. And again, I think that's a rather interesting image for um, Self centeredness, not only is it narcissistic, but also it's kind of ties us up into a kind of knotted, uh, tight, um, very difficult to disentangle bundle. I can, I can relate to that. <laughs> we, we, we feel kind of sort of caught up in our own machinations and thoughts and emotions, and it's very difficult to sort of unravel all of that. But perhaps the the teaching that is most um, central in terms of a sequence of uh, conditions that give rise to other conditions, which give rise to other conditions, is the teaching of the Eightfold Path itself. And that is, of course, embedded within the doctrine of the Four Noble Truths. And that's what I want to look at now, um, to see how this uh, practice is framed within uh, a set of four specific tasks. Now, before we go into this, and what I want to do in fact is to read through the the Buddha's first discourse, um, is to just query this idea of noble truths. An essay was published by a, a Pali philologist called um, K.R. Norman a few years ago um, who analyzes the Buddha's first discourse uh, from a, a philological point of view. Uh, in other words, he, he's not, he's not, this fellow is not a Buddhist, he's not interested in, you know, he's got no particular Buddhist axe to grind. He's a philologist, he's interested in language. He spent his whole career Working with Pali and related mid Indo Aryan idiomatic languages. The conclusion to his study of the first discourse is that in the earliest form of the discourse, the words Aryang Sachang, noble truth, did not appear. They can't have been there. Now, the reasoning is rather technical. But basically what he shows in this article is how the term noble truth was was interpolated, was added in at some later point when we don't know. But he can tell by analysis of grammar and syntax that the interpolation is actually rather crude. Um, There are, for example, the, the, uh, the, the case endings of other words have not been adjusted accordingly is what it boils down to. Uh, they've, they've left a feminine case ending where they should have changed it to a masculine case. Stuff like that. So this I think reveals for me something rather important. Namely that um, at the beginning of the Buddha's teaching, he doesn't appear to have been interested in questions of truth. We already pointed out that he never used the expressions ultimate truth or conventional truth, the two truths. And now it appears that he may not have even used the expression for noble truths. My hunch, and again I, I'm aware that this is a reflection of my own particular bias, is that at some point after the Buddha's death, um, the Dhamma became slowly um, transformed from a set of practices, things to do, into the basis for a set of beliefs. Because as soon as you introduce the word truth, you introduce... Um, the possibility of either believing the teaching to be true or believing the teaching to be false. And if you look at any introductory book on Buddhism, then you'll find on page 2 or 3 the Four Noble Truths. And what's interesting is to see how they are presented. They're presented in the form of uh, logical propositions. In other words, truth claims, Life is suffering. The origin of suffering is craving. The cessation of suffering is the cessation of craving. And the way to the cessation of suffering is uh, the noble eightfold path. In other words, four sentences with a subject, um, a verb, and a, a predicate. And one, two, three, four the reader quite naturally is being in a way asked um, whether or not they would consider such statements to be true or false. As soon as you present truths, you present propositions to be believed or disbelieved. And that has become the foundation for Buddhism as a as a religion, or let's say a religion that is based upon belief. Now, if Mr. Norman is right, and the word noble truth wasn't even there in the first uh, uh, form of this teaching, then we can let go of the whole need to get caught up in debates as to whether Um, these four propositions are are true or false. In fact, it becomes irrelevant whether life is suffering or not. It becomes irrelevant whether craving is the cause of suffering or not. This is simply not the issue. The issue, once we take out the concept of noble truth, becomes... Uh, putting into practice a series of um, actions. And those actions are to do with fully knowing dukkha, as we saw yesterday, of letting go of craving, of experiencing for ourselves the stopping of that craving, and creating and then cultivating a way of life. And that's a very different perspective from one that, seems the one that requires that we assent to certain beliefs. So what I'm going to do is read out the actual text itself in my own translation, in which I have followed Mr. Norman's conclusion and I've taken out the, the term noble truth. In fact, I've stripped it bare It's a very short text anyway. My version is even shorter. Mm -hmm. And what I think it shows, or what I hope it shows, um, far more clearly, um, is the actual logical progression of the text. Uh, The truth business, I think, gets in the way. It it actually conceals how the teaching um, unfolds. It also allows us to understand... Why the four are presented in the sequence they are. So I'm not going to call them Four Noble Truths, I'm going to call them Four. <laughs> the Four. Well, we don't find it strange when Christians talk about the Three, the Trinity. <laughs> so Bu- Buddhism has got one more the Four. Okay, so let's just listen uh, quietly, to, to, to just hear the text, and then I'll offer some reflections on it. This was taught um, probably a few weeks after the awakening in Bodh where the last passage I read out about place and ground was, um, uh, was uh, articulated. This is what I heard. The teacher was staying at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. Then he addressed the group of five bhikkhus. There are bhikkhus two dead ends which, would not, which shouldn't be pursued by someone who has gone forth. Which two? Addiction to pleasure through indulging in sensuality, which is low, village-like, pertaining to the unawake person, undignified and unfulfilling, and addiction to self-punishment, which is painful, undignified and unfulfilling. The middle way because awakened to by the Tathagata, does not lead to these two dead ends, but makes for vision and knowledge is conducive to calming, Lucid Understanding, Awakening and Nibbana. And what bhikkhus is this middle way? It is just this Eightfold Path. That is, right vision, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. This is dukkha. Birth is dukkha, ageing is dukkha, Sickness is Dukkha, death is Dukkha. Encountering what is not dear is Dukkha. Separation from what is dear is Dukkha. Not getting what one wants is Dukkha. The five bundles of clinging are Dukkha. This is the arising. It is craving, which is repetitive. Wallowing in attachment and greed obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. And this is the ceasing, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it, and this is the path, the path with eight branches, right vision, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness and concentration. Such is dukkha, it can be fully known, it has been fully known. Such is the arising, it can be let go of, it has been let go of. Such is the ceasing, it can be experienced, it has been experienced. Such is the path, it can be cultivated, it has been cultivated. So there arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. And as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear, About these twelve aspects of the four, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. There will be no more repetitive existence. This is what he said. Inspired, the five delighted in his words. And while he was speaking, the dispassionate, stainless dhamma Eye arose in Kondanya, who said, Whatever arises, ceases. End of text. Now what we have here um, is, I feel, the, the primary template or paradigm for living this way of life. And we've all as you would have recognized some of this we looked at yesterday. So I've already covered the idea of dukkha and the idea of the arising. But now we need to see where that leads us to. It's interesting to note that the text begins um, with uh, the Buddha presenting the middle way. Um, In other words, as he describes it himself, the eightfold path. But we have to remember that the eightfold path, or the middle way, is also the fourth of the four so here I think we see that we're talking about a kind of feedback loop. We, we first of all find a path. Um, we find ourselves on a, a way, in, in a particular way of life. And it may be that that starts with our thinking or with our way we communicate, with our work, with our mindfulness, with our concentration. I think for many of us it might begin with any one of those things. And that then leads us to an encounter with dukkha. But perhaps just, let's say a few words about this middle way. The Buddha describes the middle way as um, one that does not veer towards two dead ends. Now this is usually translated as two extremes but the word in Pali is anta. Uh, It doesn't really mean extreme at all, it means an end. You might be familiar with the word Vedanta. Vedanta means the anta, the end, of the Vedas. Now he's using it in in, the same word but for the Buddha, anta is not just an end, it means a kind of limit You can't go any further. You get stuck. And tomorrow we're going to look at um, uh, the whole metaphor of being stuck, which is found in the notion of antaka, the one who imposes anta, or ends, or limits, who is called the devil, Mara. So in other words, the, the middle way is not avoiding extremes, the middle way is actually the only way that really is a way, because the antas are dead ends. In other words, they don't they don't actually take us anywhere. They're not really paths. They appear to be, you know, if I, you know, a lot of I spend a lot of time pursuing what what he calls addiction in sensual pleasure, or addiction to self punishment. This is a very um, you know, central idea, that the path um, is by necessity something that is a free-flowing movement. And that's what distinguishes it from dead ends. We don't, it's not a way of life in which we keep bumping up against a brick wall and feeling stuck, feeling frustrated, feeling somehow we're not getting anywhere anymore. So in other words, the path that is being uh, spoken of here is a kind of uh, finding a certain flow in life, an unfolding, a kind of uh, free, impedi- a free movement that is unimpeded by obstacles. And that is what opens us up to experience, dukkha, the world, nama rupa Vijnana, conditionality, whatever we call it, although here in this text it's given the title dukkha. And again, it's useful to recognize that if we focus too much on dukkha and pain and suffering and so on, we forget that dukkha is just another facet of experience, life, all of these other things we've been looking at up to now. It's not the exclusive point that we have to reduce everything else to and then convince ourselves that life really is a veil of tears, a load of suffering and pain. It's about opening to our existential condition as human beings. Birth, sickness, aging, death. And what um, we begin to discover and I'm sure this is something you have probably found yourselves, is that that sounds very well, but once I start, as it were, just opening myself to life, I become sometimes even more acutely aware of how I resist it, how something rises up in me that sends me off into a fantasy, that sends me off into... A preoccupation with the past, preoccupation with the future. It's interesting in that passage with Udayin, where the Buddha says, "Um, I will teach uh, you, forget, let go the past, let go the future, I will teach you the Dhamma. And we kind of expect him to say, remain in the present. He doesn't. In fact, he he hardly ever says that. Instead, he says, Um, I will teach you the Dhamma, when this is, that arises. In other words, instead of uh, getting caught up in um, attachments and fears and preoccupations and so on, return to the actual unfolding of life itself. Return to the conditions that are generating what is happening right now return to a sense of what it is you're doing in your own life that is going to have consequences. That's where the Dhamma or Dukkha or life or the world becomes evident, becomes apparent. And again, we try to do that, but what happens, almost unavoidably, is something else rises up. This craving rises up. So when we look at the text that follows, we see that the, uh, just as the Buddha encourages us to fully know dukkha, the practice around craving is to let go of it, let go of craving. But how do you do that? How do you actually let go of craving? It sounds like a very nice idea. But is it something that we have the capacity just to let go of? Sometimes on a retreat you go to the teacher and say, I can't get out of this terrible worry about what's going on in my life. And the teacher says, well, just just let go of that. (laughs) (laughs) Come back to the present moment. It's dead easy. But of course it's not. So again, I think we have to think, well, if we understand these what's being spoken of here as a sequence of causes and effects, of conditions that give rise to other experiences, then what would be the uh, condition that would somehow um, lead to craving not rising up? And I feel that it is through the ongoing engagement and opening to and embracing of life. Dukkha, experience, nama rupa vinnana. The more that we embrace that condition, the more the uh, rationale of craving is undermined. Craving is based on the idea that um, there's something here that is threatening me, something here that is, um, uh, is something I can get or possess. There's something here that can fulfill my and support my sense of me. The more that we look at our experience through the eyes of impermanence, of dukkha, of not-self, the more that we erode uh, the underpinnings of craving itself. In other words, we begin to see, and not just theoretically, but experientially, um, the absurdity of craving. That, these, that this strategy, in a sense, um, is built on a, an illusion. That I can find permanent happiness in this rising and passing of conditional events. It's just not doable. It's not the kind of world we're in. And the more that we see that, in other words, the more we attend to our experience of dukkha, the more that that habit pattern will be undermined. And so it's not so much that we let go of craving, but rather we create the conditions whereby craving loses its momentum, or let's say its power over us, We'll look again at this tomorrow because it's not quite as straightforward as that. Um, the power of craving um, is very deeply embedded probably in our neurobiology. It's not something we're going to be able to sort of delete by meditating long enough. It's always going to be coming up. But can we be with it in such a way that it doesn't overwhelm us, captivate us, uh, feed into our narcissistic preoccupation such that we're then freed from its power. But I also feel, and again we go back to the Buddha's statement about his awakening, that the ground that he's awoken to is not just the ground of conditionality, but it's also the ground of stopping. And the stopping is the stopping of craving. Now, I feel that what happens, again, through this sort of practice is that we do find moments, perhaps more and more moments, where we come to rest in a sort of stillness, um, an inner quiet, an openness, a spaciousness, a radiancy, in which we are, momentarily at least, not the victims of our fears and our hatreds and our desires. And that, I would suggest, is an experience of Nibbana, is an experience of stopping. Now, interestingly, and again, I only found this out fairly recently, is that we saw yesterday that the Buddha describes fully knowing Dukkha as the ending of cre- ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of moha, confusion or boredom, however we understand that. Now, curiously, he also defines Nibbana in exactly the same way. In other words, the, the experience of Nibbana is also the experience of the ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of confusion. Exactly the same words. He uses the same def- definition also to describe the unconditioned, a term he uses, asankata. What is asankata, he asks? Asankata, or unconditioned, means ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of delusion. So, curiously, the practice of fully knowing Dukkha is understood in exactly the same words as the experiencing of the stopping of craving. I find this rather striking. Uh, And and oddly, I only came across it because the Pali text is now available online and you can run, uh, you've got a search engine, you can plug in any (coughs) set of words and see where else they occur in the canon. So I plugged in ending of greed, ending of hatred, and ending of delusion. And it came up describing fully knowing dukkha, the unconditioned, nibbana, and the deathless. Mm -hmm. All four. Described in exactly the same way. All within the Samyutta Nikaya. Fully knowing dukkha, nibbana, nirvana, unconditioned, and deathless are all defined as ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of delusion. (coughs) Hmm? Sanyutta. But you'll get all these references when when I send you this text. (coughs) Now, I find all this rather compelling. That um, the letting go the fully knowing of dukkha leads to the falling away rather than maybe the letting go of craving. And the letting go or the falling away of craving you know, rather obviously leads to the stopping of craving. And that's the practice of the third of the four. Uh, experience the stopping of craving. And it's in the experience of the stopping of craving that the possibility of living life from another perspective arises. And that other perspective is that of the Eightfold Path. So in other words, when we think of the four, not as four truths, four propositions, but as four tasks, we see that The first task leads to the second, the second to the third, the third to the fourth. In other words, fully knowing dukkha leads to the falling away of craving, which leads to the stopping of craving, which leads to the creation and the cultivation of a way of life. And if we think then of the idea of the unconditioned, which is synonymous to nirvana, it means a way of life not conditioned by greed, and hatred, and confusion. So the the, the Eightfold Path is what emerges from these moments in which we experience ourselves as free from the compulsion or the dictate of greed, of hatred, egoism, etc. Now curiously, this turns the, the propositional understanding of the Four Noble Truths on its head. Instead of craving being the cause of dukkha, dukkha is the cause of craving. And instead of the Eightfold Path leading to Nibbana, Nibbana is what leads to the Eightfold Path. But in looking at it that way we get a much more economic um, understanding of why the Four are presented in the sequence they are. One leads to two, two leads to three, three leads to four. And four, the eightfold path, is where the discourse begins. Monks, I have awoken to an, a middle way that is not does not veer to the dead ends, which then takes us to the first task, the second, the third, the fourth. So we have here basically a feedback loop, or a positive feed-forward loop apparently, would be better to express it. It also, this way of uh, of reading the discourse, um, clarifies very much what constitutes the Buddha's awakening. And I'll just read that passage again, because that's, the, in a sense, the conclusion of the text, is where the Buddha says, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the 12 aspects of the four, I'll explain that, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in the world. So the awakening, first of all we saw it as awakening to the ground of conditionality and the ground of of, of nibbana, is now expanded into awakening to the 12 aspects of the four And what are the 12 aspects? They are the the recognition, the performance, and the accomplishment of these four tasks. Okay, let's read the text. Such is dukkha. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. In other words, one recognizes that's dukkha. One performs a task in relation to it fully knowing it, and as it's the Buddha speaking, he says, I have fully known it. I've accomplished that task. So each of the four is to be recognized, performed, and accomplished, and three times four equals twelve. So the arising or craving is to be recognized, to see it happening, let it go, that's the task, to let it fall away and ultimately to get to a point where it has literally stopped. It's gone away. The ceasing of craving is something to be experienced. The word is sati in Pali, which means to see it with your own eyes. In other words, to consciously affirm Those moments of your experience in which you're not conditioned by your inclinations. The sankara, greed, hatred, etc. And the path that arises out of that stopping is something you need to bring into being, literally. Bhavana is the word used. And bhavana, although it's sometimes translated as meditation, a bhavana means to cultivate, to bring something about. And the path, therefore, is not something lying ahead of you. You can sort of take a leisurely stroll along it. But it's actually something you've got to create, something you've got to uh, cultivate. And as we've seen, that starts with a certain kind of vision. It leads then... That provides the foundation for a certain way of thinking, making choices, intentions. That's the beginning of an ethical life that leads you to speaking in a certain way, acting in a certain way, working in a certain way. That provides an ethical foundation for applying yourself to what really matters in your life, effort. And that then is realized through the cultivation of mindfulness and concentration. And what is it you are mindful of? What is it you concentrate on? Well, that's life, experience, whatever we call this totality that we find ourselves in at this moment. And so we come back to the first task. And that, I think, is what describes this one could call it a spiral or a loop, and that awakening therefore is not a state, a privileged state that some people have and some don't, some kind of mystical experience, but rather awakening is a process. Uh, The awakening itself is a way of life that engages all elements of our humanity, not just being good at meditation. In fact, this is a very, I think, important point, very often meditation, for good reasons, gets over-privileged. And we somehow think that that's what the practice is about, is meditating. But actually, from this perspective, the practice engages all elements of your life um, equally. The way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, the way you work, all of those elements feed in and support the other elements. If you single one out, like meditation, and think of the others as sort of optional extras, then I think you miss something rather crucial. So that's where we'll uh, leave it today. Tomorrow, we're going to come back to this same material and look more at the, uh, the arising. But we're going to look at it in terms of the, the mythological figure of Mara, the devil. And uh, the day after, we're going to look at at stream entry, which is basically a closer look at um, the link between the third and the fourth of these tasks. So hopefully that will flesh out um, what we've been uh, looking at today. Thank you.